boxes and bookends. There's nothing like a little midweek alliteration, is there? September 29th, 2021. The inspiration, creativity and community. You can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. Maya Angelou. Last Saturday was our first group creativity session over on the YouTube channel. The next two Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Time, I will be running 25s, that is 25 minutes of working on creative projects and five minutes chatting. Although I'll admit the five minutes usually end up being a bit more like eight. What can I say? I'm chatty. I found the experience to be insanely productive. I'm editing my super rough draft of the How Story Works book to get a solid first draft to Dr. Kelly Jones by October 15th, which was her command, so that I can have it out to you all by the beginning of January. Everyone else is working on a wide variety of things. Some people were writing, some were doing household tasks, others were working on various creative projects. If you have something you want to get done, the 25-5, known as the Pomodoro Technique, is proving very effective in our little sample group. Come join us if you can. It's pretty fun. It's even possible I might continue running them from time to time after the book deadline. I've got a lot of stuff to get done in an average week, you guys. The Fat Orange Cat. Box it up. There's something about boxes, be they cardboard boxes that come in the mail with something inside that we'd forgotten we ordered, or gift boxes with some special treasure inside, or maybe something dangerous from a trickster, or a version of Schrodinger's box, something magical that offers up knowledge that doesn't exist until you look inside. Today, put a box in your writing and discover what's inside it. The trope, bookends. Last week, we talked about the value of one of my least favorite writing devices, voiceover or VO. This week, we're gonna talk about one of my favorite writing devices, bookends. Bookending is when a writer opens and closes a story or a section of a story, like a chapter or an act, with scenes that mirror each other. So we start with a scene where something happens or an idea is introduced and we run through our story and then we end with a similar scene or idea or piece of dialogue. The same event is a mirror that shows us how things have changed, and as we all know, what changes in a story is how we know what it means. Bookends take a story and reflect it back upon itself, and I love it, especially when, at the end of the story, I'd completely forgotten how it began. The Question, Nano Prep. My recent binge of How Story Works has inspired me to gasp, jump back on the NaNoWriMo bandwagon. I'm trying to figure out the best way to approach this adventure. I won a NaNoWriMo back in 2009 and then made two failed attempts in 2012 and 2016. I have definite planner tendencies, but my one and only win was completely pantsed. So my question is this. And I fully acknowledge that the right answer will be different for each writer. What are your best tips for NaNoWriMo prep? Any magic spells up your sleeve? Any tried and true rituals or practices? Plantser. Dear Plantser, I'm glad I've inspired you to come back to NaNo. I think it's a wonderful thing for any creative endeavor, and I love seeing people join in. But where you fall on the plotter slash pantser spectrum definitely will affect the way you approach it. 
I think Nano, with its, hey, let's do this energy, probably aligns most with the pantser style, someone who can run in without a plan and just do the thing. Plotters tend to like to think about things first, make the plan, execute the plan. So my advice is going to be different depending on which way you want to go. For everyone, in the six weeks or so before Nano starts, do your discovery work. This means think about your story and your characters and dabble in the following. Build a soundtrack of music that is new to you that has the energy you want. You can pick songs for a particular character at a particular point in the story or for a scene or event or for a general mood, whatever. Create a collage, digital or physical, that has pictures of actors who might play your characters, settings for your story, mood art that evokes the tone you want. Pinterest is a great place to build a super easy digital collage. I like 12-inch scrapbooks with pages for different characters, events, moods if I'm going physical. And do some discovery writing, which is writing that is not intended for the book, so it's not cheating. Write a prologue, explain some backstory, fill out a personality test for your characters, that kind of thing. Then, for pantsers, try to forget everything you know about story structure and narrative theory until you are done. You can apply that stuff in revision. Create the marble block now. Carve it later. For plotters, unlike pantsers, you need to remember your narrative theory and use it to fill out a spreadsheet detailing your story progression. What happens, when it happens, how it happens. Plot it out. But make this deal with yourself. If at any point your story needs you to deviate from the plan, you deviate from the plan. And of course, everyone should go into Nano with the intent to write glorious crap. It's really the only way to fly. The Practical the beautiful goodbye. There's something about sitcoms, y'all. When things are hard, and they've been hard a lot in recent years, I spend my spare time knitting or playing Hearthstone while watching the classic sitcoms I already know by heart. In the last few years, I've been through The Office three times, Parks and Recreation two times, The Good Place thrice, and Cheers and Frasier once each, which is a big haul because they ran for 11 seasons each. Anyway, I recently came back around to Cheers for another round, and I just got to the part where Diane left. Look, there are a lot of criticisms you could throw at Cheers, and I would argue with none of them. It's celebrated toxic romance with Sam and Diane, the jokes are often fatphobic and homophobic and misogynistic, and the show is the whitest thing that has ever whited. But all that aside, there is one thing they did right. They ended the Sam and Diane love story beautifully. After five tumultuous years of what was an emotionally abusive relationship to everyone involved, including the spectators, Sam and Diane are happy and relatively healthy and ready to get married. At this moment, Diane's dream comes true. A publisher wants to publish her novel. But in order to get it ready for publication, Diane needs to go away for six months to write. Sam says, I don't, at their wedding, so that she can go and get her book done. But really, it's because he knows that her life is going in a different direction now, and he'll only hold her back. I love everything about this. I think it's the best scene ever written in Cheers. It's one of the best scenes ever written, period. This scene beautifully illustrates something we so often forget, at least in mainstream American culture, and that is that the mark of a successful relationship is not that it lasts forever, but that it ends well. There is something about forever that trips us up. 
For some reason, we think that a good relationship is one that ends in death. But that's not true. There are lots of terrible relationships that end in death because the people involved were too stubborn or scared to get out, and they just languished together until one of them finally kicked it, likely leaving the other person a hollowed-out husk. I'd hardly call that a success. A successful relationship is the one that leaves the people involved better than they were when they found each other. This relationship can last a day or a lifetime. It doesn't matter. Here, Sam is loving Diane with everything he has, and that requires letting her go. Neither of them has ever been better than they were in that moment at the very end. What Sam and Diane had up until this moment was a romance. In this final turn, it truly becomes a love story. Yes, there was just a shit ton of toxicity up until this point, but they got past it. And when they left each other, they left each other better than they found each other. Yes, it's sad. And yes, I cried. But that's not just okay. It's great. Fiction almost never shows us this part, and it really should. Because as a culture, we've lionized the languishing. And I don't think that serves anyone. Look, the inevitable consequence of love is grief. If you're going to love anyone or anything, there's absolutely no dodging that grief bullet. No matter how a relationship ends, it will end sadly. The best we can hope for is that when our most meaningful relationships end, we can love each other so much that we send each other along on our paths better for having known each other. That's the goal. That's what you work for. That is everything. Al. What has reality done for you lately? Prepare yourself for some truly crap argumentation. I might pull a muscle. October 2nd, 2021. Dear writer, I've been thinking about reality lately. You know, just easy, casual thoughts about the nature of existence, whatever. I'm going to share these thoughts with you, but let me say up front that A, I can pretty much guarantee that there will be no intellectual rigor in my argument, and B, that my conclusion is still absolutely 100% on the fucking money. All right, so if I'm going to talk about reality, let's start by defining our goddamn terms, shall we? The good old Merriam-Webster defines reality as, I shit you not, the quality or state of being real. And the quality of Lonnie. This is being Lonnie. Thanks ever so, MW. Well, okay. So what if we hop back a step to just defining real? There we get having objective, independent existence and occurring or existing in actuality. Seems chill, but here's the question. How do you know that something exists in actuality? Because you see it? Well, there are lots of things you see that aren't real, right? Mirages, the moon illusion. Your brain is literally a computer that draws conclusions that are not always in actual fact correct or, you know, reality. So fine, reality is not necessarily what we can see. What about what we can hear? Well, and there, I, I, I link, by the way, for those of you listening to this, to like a bunch of articles that sort of support the point. And so I link to something about auditory illusions. So there you go. All the links are in the thing. You can go find them. Okay, fine. Then what about touching? If you can touch something, you know it's real, right? 
Turns out, not always. But okay, let's stop playing around with the edge cases as though it validates anything because that's some bad faith argumentation right there. And let's talk about our general perception of everyday reality. Reality is that which is shared and confirmed by others around you, right? Mostly, except in cases of shared delusions like the Mandela effect and the fucking dresses white and gold. I don't even know what the rest of you are talking about. And clearly it's Laurel for fuck's sake. All right. So right about here, this is when I start to panic. I don't have a rock solid sense of reality due to being raised by a narcissist who changed reality on a dime to protect her fragile sense of self. So I legit need other people to confirm my reality in order for me to feel comfortable that it is reality. But there is no version of any reality that isn't contradicted by someone. And (sighs) okay. I got to slow down here and box breathe for a minute. I cannot concede that there is no such thing as objective reality because some things are true and some things are not true. And I know this is true because I know it's shut up. Science and math are largely provable through repeated experiments testing the edges of knowledge, but even science is wrong sometimes, which is unnerving until you realize it's designed to be mostly wrong. That apparently is kind of the point. Science actively, deliberately, and constantly investigates its own wrongness and in that process occasionally trips over demonstrable truth. Math seems to be the only truly reliable thing in the known universe, but wait, oh fuck, oh fuck, fuck. All right, so we're here. Let's keep fucking going. When reality is math and science and tactile or visual or auditory, there are edge cases where it falls apart. But for the most part, it's pretty reliable. But what about the kind of reality that is just what we believe to be true? Is that real? I mean, fuck it, right? Why not? Let's ask the question that might destroy our sense of fucking everything. Because if you didn't pick it up from the first half of this semi-cooked pseudo-philosophical essay that I am in no way qualified to write, let me state for the bleachers, reality is fucking malleable. And when we're talking about belief in something that can't be disproven, because you can't prove a negative except when you can, then belief is reality, and that is fucking that. All right. Now we're here in the middling space of this highly specious little essay on the nature of reality, and I've basically made an argument, I think, that reality exists, but it's not necessarily consistent from person to person, even in sensory experience and science and math. So belief is just as real as math or science or our senses because it all comes from the same place, our perceptions, which are in us. So reality is basically centered in the self, and the self is a goddamn mess take that Descartes. So now that I've thrown all of that at you, here's the next question that's going to fuck up your mind space. What is the purpose of reality? Let's take a moment to sit in that one. What is the purpose of reality? In other words, what has reality done for you lately? And when I think about it, I mean, reality is just shared belief in something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear some of you freaking out about that one. Belief is not reality. Reality is provable. Belief is not. Eh. Except for this. Each of us has an individual perception of reality that is centered within our existence. Sometimes we share parts of that reality with others, things like gravity and time and physical objects that we all bump into, but which are mostly empty fucking space. What the fuck? But the rest of that reality is just what we say it is. And when we believe something unprovable, like say that God exists or that God doesn't exist, it affects how we behave and how we behave has a ripple effect into other people's real lived experience. And at that point, regardless of whether that other person believes what you believe, they have suffered the very real consequence 
or benefit of your belief. And at that point, if reality is an experience that is shared by more than one person, then your belief just became their fucking reality. And okay, hang on, I'm getting a little dizzy. I need some water. So what got me started on this today is that I read this article about how we all have ADHD or something like that. And the author is, I think, arguing that people don't get to just decide that they have ADHD or decide that their grief is actually depression or decide that malignant narcissism is a thing because then reality has no meaning or some shit like that. But it's a crap argument because, of course, people get to just decide. That's what people do. Because here's a reality for you. We made all this shit up. We decided what gender was and what mental illness means and that Pluto is a planet. Oh, wait, no, it's not. And it's all fucking made up. But we made it up for a purpose. And that purpose was to share an understanding of ourselves and our universe. So if you identify with the symptoms of ADHD and the strategies for handling ADHD that someone puts on TikTok are helpful for you, then who the fuck am I to tell you, no, you're just distracted like the rest of us? Your reality is your reality and you don't get to tell me who I am, but you sure as fuck get to decide who you are. Reality, when it comes down to it, is malleable. Your reality is what you decide it is. And my reality is what I decide it is. The prescriptive era of reality is over, which means that right now, absolutely everyone's reality is disintegrating and we're all freaked the fuck out and reasonably so. Reality is shifting from being externally defined by society, fully fucked but with rules that we all understood, to being internally defined by us as individuals, which is empowering but fractious and unpredictable and unshared is fucking terrifying. Sit with that for a minute. Reality itself is shifting. Some of it is absolutely for the good as the power structures of patriarchy and white supremacy and ableism and classism and all that shit are finally beginning to be meaningfully challenged. It's good that we've thrown off the shackles of our externally defined societal reality because it was harming all of us, even the people who benefited from it. But now each of us has to decide what we believe to be true and real piece by piece, yanny by yanny, laurel by laurel, gold and white dress by blue and black dress. We're all exhausted and scared and unsure and trying our best to unfuck the things we were taught and figure out what reality is now. Right now, every person on this planet has been ejected out of one shitty but shared and definable reality air jet mid-flight, and we are all free-falling into a new universe of WTF. We're all trying to hastily construct an individual reality parachute as we fall with no real skills in how to build a reality parachute because historically it has always been built for us. Built shittily, but built. And now we need that parachute to slow our fall toward the ground, hoping it will be lofty enough at least to help us survive impact. So this whole long ramble is to say reality may be malleable, but reality is not. Well, Lana, you may be thinking right now, what the fuck do you mean by that? I mean this. Reality is internally generated. Everything we perceive to be reality is generated by a quantum computer in our skulls and by our gut. There's science out there about the gut being the second brain or whatever. Maybe someday we'll figure out how it all works through epistemological means. But right now, you already know. You already know what you should do about the thing you've been worried about. You already know that you're being so hard on other people because you're worried that you might not be enough. You already know who you love. You already know right from wrong. But Lonnie, you say, what about the sociopaths and the psychopaths and the people with no moral compass? I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. 
And you know that using edge cases to dismiss an entire argument is bullshit. I know you know it because I just told you right up there. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit, except what you already know. Living in this world has seriously gunked up the works on that internal guide for many of us, especially those of us who are younger and haven't gotten so fucking tired, they just can't anymore. So I'm bringing my hard earned wisdom of the just fucking can't anymore to you to tell you that you already know. That question you've been wondering about, you already know the answer. That problem you've been having with a person you love, you already know the answer. That thing that's been bothering you and you can't figure out why, you already know. Find a friend or a therapist and tell them about your problem and you will tell yourself the answer while you tell them because you know what? You already know. And when you don't know, when you're really not sure, there is only one answer. Kindness. And that, my sweet darling, is reality. Everything. Yeah.